3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respects to elders, past and present, of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, listeners. You're on Thursday breakfast on 3CR, 855 AM. It is just gone 7.01 and uh, it is the 9th of September, if you can believe that. Good morning, Malika. Good morning, Priya. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, I can't believe it. I mean, I should I should believe it, but wow, it is, the year has just flown by and uh, Again, we are in lockdown, and I'm joining you from one studio over, so waving through the glass at uh, Malika and Rosie, and we hope that you're all keeping safe and well. Just a reminder to always keep checking those exposure sites on the Victorian Government Department of Health. Try and book in a vaccination if you can. There are so many AstraZeneca vaccinations available, and Pfizer is sort of coming in in waves. Um, And yeah, you know, keeping an eye on those COVID-safe protocols. Yeah, I'm excited. I I got my um, first AstraZeneca shot a while ago um, and, you know, have my second appointment booked, but I can now change it to, I think, probably in about a week's time because they've changed the regulations on the, um, you know, distance between the two shots. So um, I'm going to be fully vaxxed very soon, which is very exciting. It's very exciting. And remember, the best vaccination out there is the one that you can get right now. Totally. Oh, that is that is just such a snappy little. <laughs> snappy it's been going around. Thing, yeah. I've heard it on on the interwebs. I've heard it. I'm cool. I'm trendy. <laughs> I'm pretending that you made it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, we've got a we've got a big show for you today, as always. Um, so we're going to start off with uh, playing a segment from the Stick Together program on 3CR, and that is where James Brennan interviews senior economist from the Center for Future Work, Alison Pennington, about the issues facing workers who are working from home, and while casualization was so is a flexible working option with employers holding the power it has meant that workers are in insecure work and the COVID-19 pandemic has obviously meant that many workers are working at least partially from home so hopefully this will be relevant to a lot of our listeners. We will then be speaking with Ian Rintoul, the spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. Um, We will be discussing the current safety of people currently detained at the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation Centre in Broadmeadows after a guard tested positive for COVID-19 almost two weeks ago. And uh, after that, we're going to hear a chat that I had yesterday with Barkindji woman and Wilcannia resident Monica Kerwin, who joined me to provide some updates on the COVID-19 situation in Wilcannia, highlighting how the federal and state government have failed Aboriginal communities during the Delta wave. And we're really grateful to Monica for making the time on such short notice to, to update us. Yeah, and then we'll be speaking with Jesse Noakes, co-founder and coordinator of Housing the Homeless WA, and um, they'll be speaking with us about homelessness, crisis in WA, and the recent investment in social housing flagged for the 2021-22 state budget. And then we'll be finishing up, um, I'll be speaking with Eunice Andrada, a poet and educator, and her first poetry collection called Flood Damages won the Anne Elder Award. Um, 
Eunice was born and raised in the Philippines. She currently lives and writes on unceded Gadigal land, and she's joining us to discuss her new collection, Take Care, which has just been published by Garamondo Press. That's awesome. I think um, finishing up with a, a section where people are putting out some beautiful work is really important as well, because I think as we've emphasized across the past few weeks, the arts are really sort of struggling right now. People who had planned book launches as well are not able to do them or are having them online. So hopefully um, having a little bit of a listen to Eunice talk about her new poetry book will inspire you to go do some reading. Yeah, it's. Um, I've been reading it for the past few days and it is a truly amazing collection of poetry, so I'm really excited to speak to her. Thank you. A message from Victoria's community sector. I'm looking forward to not worrying that my patients are going to die of COVID. To no one else being separated from their mum in aged care. I'm looking forward to our wedding and having our family and friends from overseas here with us. I really want to see my mum. I'm looking forward to being able to welcome guests without a mask on to having all the sports back to normal so that my family members can come and watch me play. I look forward to performing in front of a big crowd again. So please, get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Please get vaccinated. Let's get back to the good things. I ask you to get vaccinated. For all of us. Please get vaccinated. A message from Victoria's community sector. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. And uh, now we're going to the headlines for the 9th of September. A High Court decision yesterday has cleared the way for Dylan Voller to pursue a defamation claim against a number of media outlets, including the Sydney Morning Herald, The Australian and Sky News, for comments made on their public Facebook pages. An appeal made by the media organisations claimed that they were not publishers of the defamatory comments. The court dismissed the appeal, finding instead that they are responsible for any defamatory material posted to their Facebook pages by third-party users. The defamation action can now proceed, and lawyers for Mr Voller said in a statement, this is a heroic... Sorry, this is a historic step forward in achieving justice for Dylan and also in protecting individuals, especially those who are in a vulnerable vulnerable position from being the subjects of unmitigated social media mob attacks, ABC reports. Protests on the streets of Kabul, Afghanistan on Tuesday, saw groups ranging from dozens to thousands of people calling for justice and freedom and an end to the interference of Pakistan in Afghan affairs. Protesters were also rallying to defend women's rights. Journalists have reportedly been prevented from filming the protests and numbers have had their cameras taken or destroyed, while others have been arrested and beaten. 
The Identify and Disrupt Bill passed last month is facing a new wave of criticism from the public, digital, privacy and legal groups in response to the new surveillance powers handed to the Australian Federal Police under the legislation. The bill creates new types of warrants for the AFP, allowing them to change and remove data and covertly take over online accounts. Critics argue that the threshold for the warrants is way too low, that any internet user could potentially be affected by the bill and that there is a risk that the powers could be misused. Experts have also argued that the bill signals the direction of surveillance in Australia. Dr Monica Mann, senior lecturer at Deakin University, told Innovation Oz, We can't keep responding in a knee-jerk way. We need to be proactive and think bigger picture about how we affect meaningful reform and change and have a forward-thinking strategy about that rather than little groups of people here and there trying to put out spot fires. The Federal Minister for Resources, Keith Pitt, released a statement on Tuesday announcing that plans to frack the Beedaloo Basin will go ahead despite an ongoing federal court challenge brought by Environment Centre NT. The plans include millions of dollars of federal government grants to oil and gas companies, including Empire Energy, funding that was announced in the May budget. ECNT co-director Kirsty Howie told The Guardian Australia... We would have expected and had requested Minister Pitt to delay gifting money under the program until these important legal questions are determined. And finally, in some good news, Western Australian Premier Mark McGowan announced on Wednesday that the state would end native forest logging by the beginning of 2024, making WA the first state in Australia to do so. The decision does not prevent native forests being cleared for the purposes of mining. However, activists have welcomed the decision, while industry say they were blindsided, The Guardian reports. And that is all the headlines for Thursday the 9th of September. Thank you, Rosie. Um, I guess we'll just head into a CSA before we um, jump into our first interview for this morning. So... Here you are, too foreign for home, too foreign for here, never enough for both. Ijuoma Umebinyo, Diaspora Blues. What makes you smile and adds a spring to your step? What does it mean to belong and how do we build a home away from home? Diaspora Blues is a show that contemplates what is and what could be. Join Busto and Bigwa every Monday at 2.30 on 3CR Community Radio. Produced, Produced by Yan. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, we're going to hear um, an interview by James Brennan on the Stick Together program. And James was speaking with um, senior economist from the Centre for Future Work, Alison Pennington, about the issues facing workers who are working from home and discussing um, casualisation. The COVID-19 pandemic has meant many workers are working at least partially from home. So this will um, be a really interesting discussion of how how that's playing out. Today, we're going to be talking about working from home with Alison Pennington. Uh, Alison is a senior economist at the Australian Institute's Centre for Future Work, conducting research on economic issues facing working people. Welcome, Alison. Thanks so much for coming onto the show. 
My pleasure, James. So I think, you know, we're all pretty familiar with working from home and all of those, you know, kind of terms and jargon that goes around um, by now. But I think, you know, for those that are lucky enough to have a job through the pandemic and are working from home, either through lockdowns or more permanently as part of kind of the modern workplace, it's become, I, I think, you know, there's a little bit to kind of navigate throughout, you know, the challenges that that presents for workers. What are some of the things, I guess, initially that you've sort of come across in your research? Well, I like it's exactly as you said, this pandemic, suddenly uh, a job that allowed you to isolate yourself and like save yourself from contagion, but also derive an income meant that you were in a much better position than people who had to leave the home and often do that front facing public facing work and then you know, be exposed. Um, the other thing that we we found in our research is that uh, not only was it about your exposure to the virus based on whether you worked from home or not, but also that also cut down generally like the quality and security of a job and whether you had access to sick leave uh, and your and your pay as well. So people working from home on average earn about 24% more than those who can't. So that's a pretty strong like inequality divide that's being driven, I think, in this time. But uh, in saying that, we now know that there's like we estimated at the start of the pandemic that around 30% of the workforce could work from home in some capacity. But now we know as it's gone on, this has grown to uh, around 5.3 million people or 41% of all employed people in Australia are doing uh, most or all, or sorry, I should say at least once uh, per week, they're moving, they're working from home. So we're talking like a very large section of the workforce now. Uh, And so, you know, this is, this isn't about, uh, well, we need to be aware of the way we're being stratified and divided, but we also need to be very clear that the work people working from home are working under an entirely unregulated labor regime in many ways and some of the key things that have come up um, you know in our you know thinking and research on this is first and foremost the cost of working from home there is a massive cost shift that's going on right now uh, of employers shifting their cost onto workers uh, and we know because office works were reporting that their shelves were being emptied at the start of the pandemic and people were paying for their own office home office setups so you've got those costs and fixed and upfront the, the the fixed upfront cost of setting up an office but all the ongoing costs um people i mean besides the fact that a lot of people don't have a spare room in their house to to dedicate to an office they are still they're still paying rent or their mortgage they're still paying utilities internet bills printing sometimes uh, and so all these costs would have been normally carried by an employer so there's a cost shift and that's led to corresponding you know demands for some sorts of allowances or compensation for those costs there's issues of safety what is what do our work health safety legislation mean if an employer is required by law to ensure you have a safe workplace what does it mean if we have hundreds of thousands of homes that become workplaces Uh, another key issue is privacy there's a lot of if people take their work computers back home, quite often those computers are, there's like software and programs that monitor their, you know, their, whether they're using social media, some really pernicious ones, keystrokes and, you know, like that sort of productivity raising, you know, worker beating sort of stuff is, you know, we're worried about how much of that has followed people into the home and our privacy laws are not very, are not strong enough. Yeah. Yeah, There's a lot to kind of unpack there. And I guess one of the things, you know, that I've, sort of really been thinking about is I guess through the pandemic we've seen a broader realization of how much of an impact casualization has had on workers Um, you know most and most of those workers themselves don't have the option to work from home when lockdowns do occur and I think you know I think casualization was probably one of the biggest changes to the workforce um, you know for many many years and it was really sold to workers as a flexible option that they could manage their time they could do different things and 
you know, still fit in their hobbies or for their family obligations and things like that. And I I think that this new uh, working from home, these kind of flexible options seem to be a reimagining of casualization. Do you think we should be concerned about, you know, who has the power in deciding when you work from home? Because it's all well and good to have the benefits, but, you know, the power seems to be, you know, not necessarily in the workers' hands about which days and which times we get to do that kind of work. Oh, absolutely, James. Like <clears throat> when this pandemic first hit, I thought there's the employers are they're going to be sort of licking their lips and thinking the, the opportunity to reduce costs means they're going to want to keep people in the home. And I thought, well, workers now need a corresponding right to return to a normal workplace and the mm. right to separate the process of selling their labour in paid work from their private lives. Um, but it's sort of from what the data shows, so the ACTU did this massive survey and um, this combined with a whole bunch of international surveys that workers really love working from home, right? This is mm-hmm. the pandemic has absolutely shifted uh, the dial a bit and I think what workers are saying is that they want to at least have some sort of hybrid experience of being in the home and, and a fixed workplace. Working from home all the time isn't that popular, but, uh, you know, best believe that, like, employers are not happy about the loss of control they've got in this time. Um, so there's, there is a current of employers and that are businesses that are organising and lobbying on the basis of every worker must return to the workplace. We're not like, you, you may, have, may remember Scott Morrison came out randomly in one of his one of his few press conferences and just said something to the effect of, we're not like the UK and the US uh, and like Europe, we work in cities. And so everyone has to get ready to go back. And for me, that just sounds like, commercial real estate and a certain layer of business um, just pushing this angle because they can see that they've lost some some power to determine where workers work at this point in time. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also survey evidence shows that um, there's been a massive increase in more worker-friendly uh, types of flexible arrangements like job sharing and compressed working weeks that has happened in this time too. So it's the work from home shift is, I think, expanding workers' experience or uh, belief of, that they can have some more agency over how they work now this is we're coming up to I think like some pretty serious contested terrain now because there is we know that there are these desires to do something and for me I work following you know the industrial relations laws and what our legislation shows and like there's just it's got to be very hard for workers to be able to hold on to these gains if they want to stay, um, you know, have this sort of agency. So this is why, yeah, we basically need to create a labour regime and a program of protecting worker rights now that is around work from home. And we need to be building, you know, campaigns and, and worker power around this. This is James and you're listening to Stick Together, the only national radio program focusing on union news, worker stories and social justice issues. This program is produced in Melbourne for 3CR and the Community Radio Network with support of the Community Radio Foundation. Some of the some workplaces have permanently moved their staff out of the office or, you know, even completely removed any sort of office building at all. Uh, on uh, my other show, Outprise Radio, earlier this year, we spoke to some workers who were working in a call centre and they are now permanently working from home and, you know, that's also casualised and, you know, that carries a lot of burden and responsibility for those people working, living in share houses and trying to set up a private space to be able to make those calls. And I guess, you know, I, I know this 
maybe isn't a, uh, as much of an issue for all workers, but certainly some of us who are interested in unions and workplace organising. You know, it just seems really difficult for workers to be able to organise when you're working from home. It's not just, you know, bigger disputes and things like that, but it's all the incidental things. You know, I think hearing about how much your colleagues get paid or trying to get everyone to get out the door at five o'clock and, you know, little things like that. Uh, you know, how can we organise and how can we, you know, keep going with that kind of uh, workplace solidarity without the kind of physical contact with each other? Also being this underlying bubbling question for me and uh, because of the scale of the crisis we're in, that is so profound, it's, it's uh, you know, snatching people's incomes. We've got governments hostile to large, you know, most of us really, uh, and, you know, personal lives in total shambles. And we know, though, at the same time, there are people who are safe and powerful enough to be coming up with plans about how to rejig uh, the, the state of play even further in their interests. If it's possible to do that in Australia, which already has some of the most anti-union legislation in, in, the, um, in advanced economies, and we already know that we've got historic low levels of unionisation, uh, collective bargaining has under this enterprise level, you know, fast has completely collapsed, especially in the private sector. So for that example of the casual worker who's in a call centre now working from home, like the, it is dire. And I, I, I actually have a, you know, I know people just in that position because mm. there's casuals already um, face a massive uphill battle in being able to build enough strength to unionise uh, and a lot of the times where we've seen gains in recent, you know, union battles, it's been, and I'm thinking of particularly the UWU's campaigns, they've getting getting gains for casual workers and including stronger conversion rights and, you know, higher pay and all those sorts of things has depended on those workers being in the same workplace with permanent workers and being able to fix or, um, you know, integrate their well-being and their future and their their conditions to the conditions of permanent workers who by way of being harder to sack are in a position to take more risks and collectivise and get better outcomes for everyone. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast on 855am and just then we were listening to a segment from the Stick Together program. Um, James Brennan interviewed senior economist from the Centre for Future Work, Alison Pennington, about the issues facing workers who are working from home. Um, and also talking about how casualization was sold as a flexible working option, um, but unfortunately, it actually means that employers hold all the po- all the power, and workers end up in very insecure working conditions. Um, if you want to hear the rest of that interview or visit the Stick Together program page, you can go to three crorgau forward slash Stick Together and find the episode on working home, working from home and casualization. Um, and next up, we are going to go to a song. And this one is Made for Silence by Maisha. You claim you the king of the castle when I cannot prove you wrong. Then you lose what you have trying to handle that I haven't moved beyond. My anger is not quiet, but I taught it to be still. My hunger is not mild. But I trained it not to kill this mouth to cool run wild. But I've shown it greater skill. My love beats louder still. You talk, but you got a mouth. Made for silence. 
You're listening to 3CR Thursday Morning Breakfast. That was a track by Maisha, Made for Silence. We are now jumping into an interview with Ian Rintel, the spokesperson for the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney, who is going to be speaking to us about the current safety of people detained at the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation Centre in Broadmeadows after a guard tested positive for COVID-19 almost two weeks ago. And he is just joining us this morning to kind of discuss some of the implications of that. Good morning, Ian. How are you? Yeah, well, thanks. Yeah, hope, hope that's you too. Um, good, thank you. I'm very good this morning too. Um, I guess I'll just jump straight into the interview this morning. Um, from my understanding, a Garda meter or the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation Centre tested positive for COVID-19 over 12 days ago. However, as of September the 5th, COVID commandeer Weimar was quoted saying, we have had no positive tests come out of that facility at the moment. Could you just discuss with listeners what's been going on um, in the last few days? Well, I think there's a big question about what has actually been going on because uh, it was only last you know, Saturday uh, that the guys inside might have actually told that they were actually told that two guards you know, had tested positive, mm. uh, and then the commander came out and said that one guard had tested positive, you know, twelve, you know, twelve days ago. But uh, big questions remain because even if it's true that it was one guard twelve days ago and they'd neglected to tell anybody for that whole period of time, uh, they've still not not been tested. Uh, no one's been tested, and and uh, the commander also was quoted as saying, "There's been no positive tests come out of MITRE," as if that was some uh, great indication that there was no risk, but. Uh, actually, no tests had been done inside MITRE, so it was no surprise that there were no positive tests because they hadn't bothered to, you know, test anyone. Um, and I think it still remains a big, a big issue. There's uh, probably a whole shift of guards that are now uh, not attending work. It's uh, that we haven't been told whether they're, you know, self-isolating or in quarantine. But quite obviously, they've been close enough contacts. Um, 
two weeks on, according to the commander, from when the first guard tested positive, it's only now that you've got a whole shift of guards actually not you know, not turning up for work. So they've been less than um, less than transparent about what actually has happened at MITRE in a place that the government recognises is a very high risk environment for COVID. Yeah. So just to reiterate what you said, even though now two guards have been known to have tested positive and there's a number of guards that might be potentially self-isolating um, because they may have been close contacts. No like people that are currently detained at MITRE have been tested? That's that's correct. Uh, that's correct. So the commander said there's no tests have come, no positive tests have come out of MITRE, but that's because nobody has been tested. Wow. Still, still nobody. Wow. Um, and... I can imagine that social distancing might be very challenging in this facility. What precautions then are being taken to help people detained keep safe? Look, essentially there's no precautions. I mean, this is something we've been raising for longer than 12 months and the guys themselves raised it, you know, 12 months ago. There was actually quite a concerted protest at Villawood uh, when they, uh, in the, you know, over, over a year ago now when there was a, you know, an outbreak amongst guards at the at uh, the Villawood guards, uh, but there's it's impossible to socially distance inside you know the the detention centre, and it's even a problem even associated with the guards um, that the you know the guards constantly mingle there coming in and out shifts uh, coming into the detention centre, and out so you've got external guards and internal guards mm. use the same you know, lunchroom, they use the same toilets, they pass through the same, you know, the same gates. Um, masks are meant to be worn by the staff, but they're not, they're not always worn and it's mm. not, uh, not enforced. So it sounds like just the standard protocols that everyone has been following aren't really being followed within the centre. No, that's right. There's no social distancing. There's no hand sanitizer. You know, they said they, the normal precautions that are associated outside uh, are not, are not followed inside the Mm. And I guess you've shared um, recently that many people detained have also underlying medical conditions. What, with MITRE being, like you said, a high-risk COVID environment, what is being done to protect their health? Well, again, the answer to that's nothing. Uh, even though the Human Rights Commission um, and, the, and the government itself admitted there were something like 243, 246 uh, people that they you know, recognised and categorised as uh, having serious health the yeah. underlying underlying medical conditions. Uh, the Human Rights Commission, um, again, almost a year ago, recommended that anybody in that category actually be released from detention. It was part of an overall, you know, bunch of recommendations that the Human Rights Commission actually made to the government about COVID management in detention. The government has has ignored that inside the BRP you know, compound, uh, which is where the one guard that they've admitted to uh, is, was meant to have been uh, associated with. Uh, you've got many people inside there. You've got one guy who's only got one kidney. He's got a letter in his hand that says uh, from you know, well before COVID that he shouldn't be in a detention environment. You've got people with cancer. You've got people with diabetes. Mm. Yeah, there's a whole lot of uh, people who, again, according to the government's you know, own uh, categories recognises them as uh, you know as as vulnerable because of their underlying medical conditions, but there are no you know overarching you know arrangements, let alone consideration of the recommendations that people be in those categories be released. Yeah, and I can imagine that for those detained, it would probably like exacerbate some of their well-being concerns, having to deal with the constant stress of juggling their medical conditions, but also the fear of contracting coronavirus whilst in detention. 
That's yeah, that's correct. And I think the misinformation and the uh, contradictions that we're getting from the you know, official statements from ABF, from the you know, COVID commander yeah. you know, in Victoria, only complicates that. Adds to their anxiety and to their general mistrust of the you know the authorities inside detention. The yeah. ABF border force says, "Oh, trust IHMS, the medical provider." But <laughs> people know that IHMS is effectively just a, a wing of you know a border force. So the idea that you've got this you know trusted medical provider that the guy are going to go to to get you know considered uh, medical information or they simply don't believe that IHMS and there's good reasons for not believing that IHMS has their you know, medical welfare at you know at heart so the idea that they're going to rely on IHMS for you know sort of considered medical advice yeah. that just isn't that just isn't going to happen particularly again when you've got you know many many allegations of um, you know of, of you know of neglect uh, by by IHMS including a recent one where we got one diabetic guy in uh, MITRE was handed uh, to um, you know opened open syringes uh, for his oh, wow. uh, insulin insulin uh, shots Wow, so it really sounds like where can you go for that medical advice? And even when you do have the medical advice, it's not being heeded to. That's yeah, that's right. I think it raises a whole issue that's been associated with COVID, and and uh, the, the which are exacerbated by the circumstances in, in detention that you you need trusted health advice. You know, if people are going to you know going to be able to respond properly, then there has mm. to be you know proper medical, independent medical advice that the the guys have got some trust in, but uh, also that the authorities respond to. And um, you know, as we've said many, many times. I mean, they, they, people shouldn't be in detention anyway, and COVID yeah. just adds a, another measure of, uh, you know, of risk of, of uh, medical harm uh, and yeah. mental harm because of the anxiety that's being done to people who are being wrongly, you know, kept in detention. 100%. And um, I guess as a follow-on, as we as a state rush towards that 70% target of the population having their first jab um, of the vaccine, how many people are vaccinated within the facility? Well, the government's refused to give that information and it's only uh, seven days ago that the first vaccination started inside MITRE. Uh, now, again, this is extraordinary because uh, detention centres were meant to be one of the very high-priority areas, but like uh, you know, Aboriginal people in Australia, they, they say one thing in terms of meant to be a priority, but uh, the practice is, is another one entirely. So they only started vaccinations in MITRE uh, a week ago, uh, mm-hmm. Wednesday, you know, last week, uh, we don't really know how many people have been vaccinated, but you can uh, easily imagine that we're talking of a, a relatively low, low number yeah. uh, in that, you know, in that time, and it's only, you know, it's only one jab. But again, you see, you know, a high priority area of the population has been uh, been ignored. I mean, the fact is that detention, deta- people in immigration detention, are are simply not a priority uh, for the government when they, you know, when they should be, you know, a priority. Yeah. I think the other thing is that, uh, as I said before, with the distrust in IHMS, um, it's not it's not going to be a surprise if there's a, a greater difficulty in terms of vaccination inside the detention centres because there is no trust in IHMS and um, it's why people if they were outside could get uh, proper information, could talk you know, to their you know, to their own communities, get independent health advice, and that would be a, a big benefit for you know all concerned. Yeah. Truly. And for listeners that are interested in learning more and keeping up with what's kind of going at Meta and other sort of detention centres, how can they follow and keep up to date with everything that um, the Refugee Action Coalition is doing? 
Well, I mean, the, the, I think the best thing probably is to both look at RAC, the Refugee Action Collective, uh, you know, website and Facebook in in Melbourne and Refugee Action Coalition um, in you know in Sydney. I think we're both uh, very closely involved with what's happening um, in you know in MITRE in constant contact with people inside the detention centres and try to get that that information out. So that'd be where I'd be looking. Uh, you know, first, yeah, first of all, I certainly wouldn't be looking to the uh, COVID commander for uh, sensible statements about MITRE Detention Centre. No. Um, thank you for joining us this morning, Ian, and kind of sharing everything that's been going on at MITRE at the moment. Um, and, yeah, for listeners that are interested in keeping up to date, you can check out the Refugee Action Coalition. Thanks again, Ian. Okay, thanks very much. Earth Greetings have been making sustainable beautiful since 2003. Their 100% recycled cards, plastic-free stationery and earth-friendly gifts are made in Australia with the lightest possible planetary footprint. Shop online at earthgreetings.com.au or at one of over 500 stockists Australia-wide. Earth Greetings is a 3CR supporter. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Kamanacha on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost, and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is a bad deal, but Muckety is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, Worker Stories and Union News. Grassroots Voices broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It has just gone 7.38 in the morning. And you just heard an interview that Malika did with Ian Rintoul, who's a spokesperson from the Refugee Action Coalition in Sydney. And Ian joined us to talk about the current safety of people detained at the Melbourne Immigration Transit Accommodation or MIDA Centre in Broadmeadows after a guard tested positive for COVID-19 almost two weeks ago. Now we're going to go to a chat that I had yesterday with Barkindji Woman and Wilcania resident Monica Kerwin, who spoke with me about the COVID-19 situation in Wilcania and highlighted how the federal and state government have failed Aboriginal communities during the Delta wave. And before we go into that, I just want to note that there is some uh, mention of suicidal ideation. As, so as a content warning, um, please be aware of that. And if you need to speak to anybody about this, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114, Australia-wide, 24 hours and seven days a week. And here's that conversation with Monica. Monica, thank you so much for joining me on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. Uh, to talk about the situation in Wilcania. Uh, thank you. So could you start off by maybe introducing yourself in a little more detail and telling us about your relationship to the community? Yep. Um, I'm Monica Kerwin, I'm born and raised in Wilcania. I'm a Barkindji descendant. Um, lived in Wilcania all my life, grew up here. Um, yeah, and my relationship in 
in my community, um, I, you know, I have a big relationship with a lot of the Aboriginal families here. I know every single one of them, um, from the oldest elder that we living elder that we do have, down to right down to the youngest baby, um, babies that was born. So yeah, that obviously means that you've got quite a good view of the way that COVID nineteen has hit the community. And um, you've been speaking to media and posting video updates about the situation in Wilcannia since the first COVID cases. Um, and you've been amplifying, you know, things like the appalling suggestion that Wilcannia residents simply order Uber Eats. Um, so, yeah, could you give us an update on the developing COVID-19 situation in Wilcannia? Yeah, um, well, at the moment, um, you know, probably the rest of Australia can see that, um, you know, our numbers have risen um, since last month. Um, we're up to 100 and something, I'm told, today. But um, And we don't know if that's minus the um, the first lot of COVID um, cases that we've had. So we don't know if they took away the 20-odd that um, were first um, tested positive. They've really, um, come out of um, lockdown and... Um, never fully recovered, but yeah, and they're out and, you know, out of lockdown. So, you know, the numbers are pretty high and the situation here is, um, you know, it's, well, the whole process of it all um, was a very slow response is all I can say, just a very slow response on both state and federals, um, you know, on their watch, really, they should have, you know, um, it shouldn't have happened. It shouldn't have happened in an Aboriginal community considering, you know, um, government, you know, put us up there as um, vulnerable. Yeah. And I mean, Aboriginal communities around the country have been really proactive in trying to secure those supports for, a, a you know, uh, a preemptive response in, in the case that something like this would happen. But... How has the response actually been on the ground, especially since COVID has now hit? A very slow one. We've they've only got thirty um, camper vans in motor homes um, on Saturday, on um, just last weekend, and you know it's now the middle of the week, and still no none of the residents of you know community have isolated in them because the community feels that, you know, it's a little bit too late, mm. month too late. You know, we had to wait a month for them to get um, anything into this community. The food security was because of, you know, beautiful people around around Australia, not the Australian government. They sent in near 16 pallets of um, dry goods, um, and that was, you know, um, the first week but the community wasn't gonna get that food until the second week until they organized volunteers um you know so the food security is is pretty much the only quick response um we've ever got and that was um because of the australian people dipped into their own pockets and you know um had connections out there um to, to to get the food security um, up quickly. But as for isolating families, you know, um, that's 
that's one month too late and a hundred and odd cases way too late. Yeah, I mean, as we've seen, the Delta variant really spreads so fast. And when there's housing insecurity and food insecurity as well, even waiting a couple of days can be make or break. Well, you know, a lot of the families was crying out for, you know, I need somewhere else to stay because I'm tested positive and I don't want to go back into the house, you know, where it's currently overcrowded. But their health service was saying you need to go home and isolate, not knowing. Well, New South Wales Health, really, sending people back, you know, into their homes when they don't fully understand that there's an overcrowding situation. There was no, nothing on the ground, um, no emergency plan put in place. We, We still to this day, our community have not seen an emergency plan of any sort, a plan, well, not an emergency one now, but a plan of any sort. We're still left in the dark and they're still, you know, having their meetings around the table and it's not getting back to the grassroots people. We had the health minister fly into this community yesterday and, you know, uh, we don't understand what for. You know, is it to come in and, and, and tell the emergency crew or the SES and all of them give them a pat on the, on the back for a what, slow response? Or we just don't understand why the man came here. And a community that he blamed, you know, um, an Aboriginal family for starting this COVID. We're all in a lockdown and he came into this community and he went to the health hospital up there. You know, there was an elder sitting in that, in, in on the back veranda having a visit from her grandchildren and great-grandchildren while they stood under the balcony on the riverbank just to say hello to her. You know, he couldn't even have the decency to walk in there and apologise to her. An apology to the community or somebody, you know, not coming in and, and then walk away and say, oh, you know, I can actually see they have a housing issue now. We've been crying out for this housing issue for, you know, ever since I was a child. That's over 50 years ago. You know, we got overcrowding problem because, you know, we, we, we had a couple of deaths long before that funeral. So families was coming home to be with other grieving families. We weren't in a lockdown. Our community was not in a lockdown. Sydney was, but Wilcannia wasn't, you know. And they just failed us. State, federal, all of them, they failed us. They failed this community. They're failing all the outback communities, you know, up and down this Darling River here. They're failing our people. The only only good going to come out of this is our people survive it, you know. They, 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 they're surviving this. And, and that's the only good thing I can see. We haven't had a death yet from COVID, thank God. And I'm thanking God for that. But we haven't had a death. In order for it to stay that way, what are some of the things that you're calling for to, to protect the community and service people's immediate needs? You know, for it to stay this way, you know, encouraging our mob to just, Stay in this lockdown period, you know, just, I know it's really hard for a lot of families, especially when you're in an overcrowding situation, but, you know, they, they've offered vans now and nobody trusts government here. So really just trying to get mob, you know, to stay home and, and just, you know, just hang in there through this lockdown period, just sit still for a while, you know.
it's a really difficult part of this is you know, when there hasn't been the public health communication or the resourcing or the rapid response from government, then people are left to try and sort out this incredibly difficult situation by themselves. Yeah. Is there anything uh, that the wider community can do, you know, from outside of Wall Kenya? Well, really, I think, you know, they've, they've done an excellent job in, you know, getting it out there that, you know, the lack of support we did have. So, you know, just getting getting our voices heard out there, you know, um, through the media, um, you know, whether it's mainstream or social media or whatever it is, but, you know, and, and you know, out, the outside help um, that we did get, I will praise that because it was Australian, the Australian people, you know, who've either experienced this, um, you know, in bigger bigger communities or cities or whatever, but they've supported us more than, you know, a lot of government organisations and the government themselves. So, you know, I, I really, honestly, I, I cannot thank those beautiful people of this country. You know, I can't thank them enough. You know, honestly, it was all I could say that, you know, I'm blessed to know that people out there did care about us, you know, um, and, and, got our message out there and really, you know, put the spotlight on Wilcannia and, you know, um, was up the government about it, you know. We never thought we'd actually get COVID 12 months after it hit, you know, or, um, or well, from 12 months ago, you know, lockdown, being in lockdown 12 months ago. So we, we all happily did that, you know. We were complying to all the all the laws that were out there. And then, um, you know, things were running smoothly until, you know, I'd say the 11th of last month, you know, um, is when things went otherwise for us. And we we just don't understand, you know, how somebody could slip through the system and bring a virus in here that, you know, almost, we almost had had a few deaths from, you know, because, you know, they they just was negligence. It just comes down to negligence. And I will always say that, you know, I will say that they neglected their duty of care as a government and, you know, especially a lot of the organisations that get government funding, you know, right down to our um, health system here on the ground. Our, well, our health services on the ground, they've even failed us too and still failing us. The message is that people who are outside, who have the, the privilege of being able to, you know, amplify voices of people who are in the community affected by this and donating where they can is, is really important. And that's where, you know, we, we, we very much appreciate that. that. That response was the best response we've ever got, you know, um, from from just everyday people, you know, just hard-working people, you know, and caring people out there. That was the best for us, that that response and getting all that food in here and, you know, just now people are more relaxed at home now and, you know, when it first hit last month, you know, I know a lot of young people was on the verge of committing suicide, you know, on top of... 
corona coming into the community, we we also had that black dog creep in here. And now, you know, help is saying, shall we bring in a lot of, um, you know, counsellors and all this? I said, what for? You know, if anything, we've we've held each other up this long. Why do we need you? You know, yeah. is the question, why do we need you? Why do you want to come in? Because we're sick and tired of the ticker box response. And that's what it's been. They come in, tick their box and, you know, leave. Yeah, and at the end of the day, um, you know, bringing in counselling support, like mental health support is important when people need it, but at the same time, it's it's not the same as alleviating the pressures that lead to people's distress. Yeah, if we, you know, the families coped within homes of, um, you know, being tested positive and, you know, even giving it to their children, you know, um, their children was tested positive and, you know that as as a mum and a grandmum, I'd be I'd be devastated, you know, to know that okay, all I did was just go up the shop, mm. you know, and and grabbed a bottle of milk and 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 I come home and I gave COVID to the rest of my family, you know, that emotionally and mentally that you know would have been crushing for a lot of parents. It would have just crushed them, and you know, like I said, a lot of them are young young parents. Um, you know, all sorts of things was going through their heads. Plus, the community is still grieving. You know, we still we still have two more um, funerals in this community, and you know that's not not going to happen the way culturally we do things. You know, so yeah, so you know, dealing with all of that and this COVID outbreak, and you know, being being at home and your child got COVID and you know, all sorts of things going through your head, like, is, is my kid going to die tonight? They they want to bring in counsellors for that, you know, and a lot of us, you know, we contacted, well, I did contact a lot of the young families and just, you know, ask them how they're going. And a lot of them, you know, to hear men cry and young women say they want to end their life, it was just heartbreaking, you know, that the response to to COVID outbreak in an Aboriginal community that's also grieving, you know, was, I don't know, just appalling on the government's behalf. If I could say, you know, and encourage other Aboriginal communities out there is have your own, you know, COVID emergency plan ready to go to protect your people. You know, set something up now. Use what's happened in, you know, our community as something you sit at the table and talk to one another about at grassroots level and start your own COVID emergency plan and shove that in government's face. Because at the end of the day, you know, we've uh, we've only ever wanted to be part of the solution, but we weren't invited to the table. ...with Barkindji woman and Wilcannia resident Monica Kerwin, who joined me yesterday to provide some updates on the COVID-19 situation in Wilcannia, highlighting how the federal and state government have failed Aboriginal communities during the Delta wave. And um, 
Yeah, it, uh, it is pretty heavy listening to the, the impacts that it's had on the Wilcannia community and also, you know, in the context of seeing COVID-19 spread like wildfire across far west New South Wales Aboriginal communities. And uh, this segment did include some mentions of suicidal ideation. So if you did need to speak to anybody about that, you can contact Lifeline 24-7 Australia-wide on 131114. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And we're going to go into another track now. This is One by One by Ancestress, and she's just released an amazing music video and really powerful storytelling um, in this video. So we encourage people as well, uh, once you've heard the song, um, have, have a listen to the song and have a watch of the music video as well. So this is One by One by Ancestress. Dum, dum. They killed us one by one, they killed us two by two, they shot us down with guns, and they poisoned the food, they spread the smallpox long, spread the smallpox wide before they came to Queensland, nine out of ten had died, put it out again. Taking five out of ten, that left us five percent. Oh, what a high descent! But they carry their flags, carry their flags, carry their flags, and it's an honor, such an honor, just to fly that flag. They killed us man by man, they killed us clan by clan, they gave us new demands, took away our lands, stole my talk, and they have changed my walk, and what belongs to us is still sold and bought, still feed me poison food, give a place for the rude, they strip necessity nude, so they can build an excuse but they carry their flag carry their flag carry their flags and it's an honor such an honor just to fly that flag This has always been home and still the stories we keep reflect the truth we've known But they kill us today, still take our kids away Yeah, they carry out war just in a different way But they carry their flags, carry their flags And it's an honor, an honor just to fly that flag
The Maritime Union of Australia is pleased to announce the Struggles That Made Us poster design prize. With a five grand first prize, the MUA is calling for submissions of a poster or artwork that addresses or is inspired by the struggles, events or historical figures amongst Australian maritime workers. The winning design will be launched on May Day 2022 and featured in a special May Day edition of Overland magazine. So get amongst it, people. Jump online and search for MUA Design Prize to enter. The Maritime Union of Australia is a proud 3CR supporter. You're on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM, and you just heard Ancestresses One by One. And now we're joined by Jesse Noakes, who is the co-founder and coordinator of How's the Homeless WA, who's speaking with us about the homelessness crisis in Western Australia and the recent investment in social housing that's been flagged in the 2021-22 state budget. Hi, Jesse. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning, Priya. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, not a problem. Um, so can we start off by hearing a little bit about How's the Homeless WA? So who's been involved? When did you form and why? And how have you been organising over this time? Yeah, so How's the Homeless WA, um, it's kind of the campaign's almost splits into three parts, really. So the sort of the background is a very long history of um, advocacy for Aboriginal people in Western Australia part of myself, but even more so my colleague, Dr Betsy Buchanan, who's been um, advocating and organising with the Noongar community in Perth and the South West for many decades. She first got into this sort of in the early, uh, late 60s, early 70s, has been, has been a fierce advocate for, for that community ever since. Um, so we, in about um, September last year, Betsy and I worked together for years, but following um, the onset of COVID and the ensuing lockdowns, um, the crisis that's always been there um, on the streets of Perth for homeless people, especially for Aboriginal families um, who are, you might not be surprised to hear, but might be surprised to hear the scale of it, like wildly disproportionately affected by housing and homelessness issues in Western Australia, um, to an extent even more starkly than in the rest of the country. Um, with the kind of the usual consequences that they are somewhere safe to raise their kids. Um, they often lose their kids, their terrible health outcomes. Um, the interaction with the prison system are only worsened. Um, and following the COVID lockdown and the response from the WA government, which uniquely around the country was to do nothing to people who were basically abandoned on the streets throughout the first lockdown and all the ensuing lockdowns in Perth, um, Betsy and I got together and decided to launch a campaign to, to try and do something about it. And so over the past year or so, we've worked with um, the families we, we know so well to help them share their stories when they want to um, with the public and through the media to try and generate as much pressure as possible in the run-up to the state election in March um, and, and following that in the run-up to this year's budget to try and get something last from this government 
Um, and I'm pleased and relieved to report that we have. It's not enough, but it's better than nothing. Mm. And that's definitely the alternative going into this. Yeah, and I mean, I guess... The, the scale, as you've mentioned, you know, people, especially because, you know, we're broadcasting from NARM or Melbourne and people might not be aware of the just appalling scale of um, homelessness and the, the crisis that has been facing Western Australia. I mean, you know, capital cities across this country and housing and overcrowding is, is very common in, in regional remote communities as well due to a lack of resourcing and investment. But, um, you know, we've, we've also seen the tragic deaths of quite a few Aboriginal people, uh, Aboriginal women in particular on Perth streets, um, you know, just over the past month or so, uh, who have been house- members of the houseless community. So could you maybe tell us a little bit about that and the sort of vulnerabilities that people are facing, not just with COVID, but in general? Yeah, and I think in general is um, a good way of framing it, because this is not a new crisis. Um, Aboriginal people especially um, have always been first and hardest by all the um, manifold and insidious impacts of colonisation. Um, so this is you know, a crisis that was genesis more than 200 years ago. But it's um, really been particularly um, amplified and made evident by COVID for a variety of reasons when the rest of us were able to retreat into our homes and, you know, sadly, so much of the country, including you guys at the moment, your... Um, forced to remain in your homes for the most part. But when the rest of us had somewhere, at the very least, had somewhere safe, a roof over our head to retreat to um, when the pandemic appeared, um, for these families, um, either on the streets or, as you say, in very crowded accommodation, they really had no protection at all, continue to have Mm. no protection. Um, And that's not just a COVID risk. I mean, it's, it's a public health risk the best of times ongoing public health emergency. And fortunately, um, WA, I think, fortunately doesn't get much attention, but um, it really is the, um, the front line of colonisation and ongoing impacts in so many ways. And one of the most stark of those has been the loss of so many vulnerable and marginalised people um, over the past 18 months in Perth in 2020, the first year of the pandemic, 56 people died while homeless, which mm. is a fatality rate of something between 5 and 10% when you consider there's between 500 and 1,000 people sleeping rough in Perth at the moment. Um, and more recently, just in the space of the last two months, in a tiny pocket of the Perth CBD, no more than 250 metres in diameter, we've lost four young Aboriginal women um, in the space of only a few weeks, three of them in a fortnight following a vigil at Parliament for, um, for Alana, rest in peace, who was tragically found dead in the middle of June in the very centre of the Perth CBD. So it is um, a crisis that has kind of unfolded in our midst and has um, really sort of exploded recently. And mm-hmm. sadly, I think there's still not enough attention being paid to this um, but at least more recently, um, we have begun to see some focus on this issue. I think that's um, motivated the scale of the government's response in recent days. Yeah, I mean, it's just absolutely appalling to think that people, um, you know, have, have been forced to endure these situations and some people, you know, not surviving them. Um, 
So I'm just going to turn to the Western Australian budget 2021-22 because this is part of what you've been pushing for is obviously an increase in housing provision. And we saw a social housing investment in this uh, this recent budget. And I thought this was quite interesting because they do refer to social housing. And we've spoken on this show previously with members of Safe Public Housing Collective who are based in NARM about um, – you know, the difference between public and community housing. So I was wondering if you could give us your thoughts on this uh, projected investment and also potentially about the distribution between public and community housing and the quantity that they've promised. Yeah, well, as I say, first and foremost, it's a lot better than nothing. Um, It's certainly not enough to resolve this crisis. It doesn't even clear the priority public housing waitlist, which has doubled to more than 3,500 families over the past 18 months. Um, But it is something, and um, I think that's a vindication, first and foremost, for the people who have stood up and spoken out and shared their stories over the past year. Um, You're right, it's framed as a social housing investment, and that, I think, is in large part due to the housing and homelessness sector, um, you know, having certain interests that they need to protect, interests that don't necessarily best serve Um, the people they seek to and claim to. My understanding is it's always difficult to pass the numbers with this government because they make announcements and then they re-announce those announcements and the numbers just kind of pile up and it's quite difficult to to know exactly what's going where. From what I can tell, this is an announcement of 3,300 public houses which will be administered by the Housing Authority, the old home um, which, in my view and experience, is the body we want administering housing for mm. people who need it, especially for Aboriginal people in Western Australia, um, because they are, to some degree at least, accountable. Um, and what we're really pleased with, especially, is a return of a policy known as spot purchasing, where the department's able to identify and buy off the open market properties um, that are suitable for specific families identified as being in immediate crisis. And that's something we've been calling for um, for about a year. It's something that previous governments used widely to, to respond to immediate crisis situations. This government had basically, um, had basically stopped doing that. And I'm very pleased to see that part of this announcement is um, a fund of $40 million a year to enable spot purchasing to be to be retained and returned to their public policy toolkit. So, look, the proof of the pudding is always in the eating, and it's a four-year projected plan and rollout. So uh, we need to maintain the scrutiny and ensure that the pressure doesn't go away. Um, and it's only a start. But, look, at the end of the day... You gotta, you gotta celebrate the wins, and yeah. I think this is definitely a win that um, that wouldn't have come without the pressure that the community has put on this government over no. the past year. Absolutely. And um, so, what happens next, and how do you how do you build from here? It's a very good question. I mean, the campaign itself has uh, has at times been a grassroots, um, community driven campaign. So there've been um, various camps that have emerged over the past year. The most high profile of the camp in Fremantle over the Christmas and New Year period where hundreds and hundreds of community volunteers came together to support 
um, to you know to, to volunteer and donate and provide food and shelter and support for about a hundred people who were forced to camp in Fremantle over that um, especially vulnerable time of year. Um, so it's important to solidate and thank you know to, to acknowledge the community response. Um, however, at other times this has kind of been a deliberately public focused media campaign. It's really been about driving political pressure and that's been the imperative priority at all times. Um, so going forward, I think um, I think that pressure will be maintained mm. and we need to ensure it is. Um, however, there is, um, in, I mean, in some respects, there's a feeling that, you know, I think the government made this announcement to make this issue go away and they made it as quietly as they could to ensure it didn't look like that's what they were trying to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but realistically, I think the political calculus has shifted announcement. Um, it's it's not as, um, you know, comprehensive or as um, complete as we've seen in other parts of the country in recent months, but it is enough probably to to um, to dissolve some of the pressure yeah. that they've been feeling. So I think we just need to ensure that they're held accountable, and I'm hoping more than anything that that becomes uh, a national cause rather than just a local WA one. I'd really like to see, um, you know, media around the country, but also other communities around the country um, pick this issue up, especially the very immediate crisis of people mm. continuing to die on WA streets, which, you know, 3,300 houses in four years is not going to do anything Absolutely. for the families calling us in crisis yeah. every morning. And I think, um, you know, this is this is a good sort of way to, to wrap it up is to acknowledge that this is a victory, a small win here, um, but there needs to be continued momentum, continued scrutiny, and um, especially with the grand final, the AFL grand final being held in Perth this year, um, you know, this is also an opportunity for people to really put the spotlight on, um, on houseless, you know, communities in Perth and, and support you know, any organizing that you're doing to make sure that people are actually housed as quickly as possible. So, um, Jesse, thank you so much for joining me today. And can you just quickly let us know where people can find out more about Hasla Homeless WA? Uh, yeah, so we've got a website, org. We've also got a Twitter feed. Uh, to be honest, the best way is probably just to follow me on Twitter or jump on and grab my details, my email address, my phone number. I post it on my Twitter profile. So just um, bang my name into Google. And if anyone wants to get in touch, I would love to love to speak with people um, over east or anywhere else um, and discuss how we can kind of all work together to continue driving change and holding the government to account. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Jesse. Yeah, really appreciate it. Take care. And that was a conversation with Jesse Noakes, who's a co-founder and coordinator of How's the Homeless WA. And Jesse spoke with us about the homelessness crisis in Western Australia and the recent investment in social housing flagged in the 2021-22 state budget. And you're on Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard about 3CR's national programs? Coming at you on community radio stations around Australia, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. Services will be cut, jobs may well be lost and workers' entitlements will be undermined. Their basic human rights are as important as everyone else. Over 200 million years, individual species have evolved. I mean, birds were once dinosaurs. Anything nasty online seems to be targeted against women. Muckety is 
a bad deal, but marketing is absolutely not a done deal. You're listening to Women on the Line. Welcome again to Lost in Science. And welcome to another edition of the Radioactive Show. You've been listening to Earth Matters on the Community Radio Network. Hello and welcome to Accent of Women. Anarchist Wall this week. Listen to Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. You are listening to Let the Bands Play. Tune in to Stick Together, worker stories and union news. Grassroots Voice is broadcast weekly on the Community Radio Network. You're on 3CR Thursday morning breakfast. And up next, we're speaking with Eunice Andrada. Eunice is a poet and educator. Her first poetry collection, Flood Damages, won the Anne Elder Award. She was born and raised in the Philippines and currently lives and writes on unceded Gadigal land. And she's joining us today to discuss her new collection, Take Care, which has just been published by Giramondo Publishing. And just before we begin this conversation, as listeners, please be advised that this collection of poems has themes of sexual violence and colonial violence, which listeners may find confronting. Thank you so much for joining us today, Eunice. Thank you so much for having me. Hi, Rosie, and hi, everyone at home. (laughs) It's such a pleasure to have you. Um, I received your book about three days ago, and I've just been, it's been sunny down here in Nam and been reading in the sun, and it's been, yeah, a really special experience. But I was wanting to begin by asking you to talk about the title of the collection, which is Take Care. And when I read that first, you know, care often is associated with, you know, gentleness or softness, but um, it also reads as a kind of warning that these poems, um, as you say in your author's note, explore the role of rape culture in the machinery of imperialism. And it recalls as well like a farewell, um, as if someone is about to leave or go away for a time. So I was wondering what you were thinking about in the title. Yeah, thank you so much for all of those observations. I think um, with the poems in this collection, I've tried to bring those to the surface. Um, so the collection opens with the epigraph, which is a line from Diane's poem. Um, and the epigraph reads, The only way to know tenderness is to dismantle it. And through the writing of these poems, that's what I've really tried to do, to unpack the idea of care and to trouble that, that saying, take care. I wanted to ask the questions, you know, who gives care, who takes it, and at what cost? Um, I was also really thinking about um, the act of care as labor, particularly as a woman, particularly as a Filipino woman. What does our labor of care mean to ourselves, to our families, to our communities, as well as to the rest of the world? How is our care exploited in these global industries? Um In the poems, I particularly focus on the care of Filipino women in different parts of the world. Um, And I wanted to sort of humanize that labor because it is often seen as expendable and that, um, you know, Filipino bodies, Filipino women are transformed into these bodies in service, um, in the service of care, in hospitals, in in domestic, um, in in nursing uh, agencies, nursing homes. Um, but I wanted to just humanize all of those Filipino women who do that, who care for a living, um, not for themselves, but for other people. Mm. So um, there are all dimensions in the collection. Um, but I also wanted to just trouble uh, what it means to take care, particularly now, um, as we're all living in different um, stages of lockdown restrictions, because take care is said so effortlessly. Um, and as you said, take care is also a goodbye. 
um, particularly in Filipino culture, um, instead of saying paalam, which is a more formal way of saying goodbye, people say ingat, which means take care. Um, and it's often said as um, as our loved ones go overseas to work and we don't see them for a very long time, um, ingat, or take care, is said as a goodbye. Um, I also wanted to to dive into those dimensions where take care is said to women, particularly at night, you know, that we need to take care of ourselves or XYZ will happen to us. And when those dark things do happen, we're blamed for not being careful. Mm. Um, so it's all of those things. Yeah, well, I was just thinking in that, like, that kind of complex answer and, like, deep answer that you're giving there is, you know, that is basically the experience of reading the poems is there is so much um, just in those two words, take care, that all of those layers of, um, yeah, labour, exploitation, colonialism, um, yeah, safety of women, all these things are kind of layered in there um, and, yeah, so that's what that's what listeners can expect if they do go out and buy your book. I was wondering if we could um, talk about the first poem in the in the collection. Yeah. It's called Echolalia, and I didn't know what that word meant when I read the poem, so I looked it up. Um, and it's the repetition of speech by children learning to talk. Um, in the poem, there's lots of images of rising and sinking, and that kind of goes throughout the yeah. book, actually. Um, and then. Um, the kind of process of sound becoming words um, and words becoming communication um, kind of is woven through those images and it kind of culminates in this point when uh, you, the, the line, I want the no to petrify all movement. I was wondering if you could begin by talking about this poem um, and why it's the first in the collection. Sure. So um, I'll start off by saying, um, as someone whose first language is not English, I often look up words and um, and I often, you know, write the poem first and then find the title later, um, you know, the concept to match um, the rest of the poem. But uh, so about um, Echolalia, I wanted to be able to, uh, I think... With that poem, I've tried to situate two acts of violence alongside each other in a way that not to make it coherent, but to say that these two acts of violence are related and they are kin. Um, the poem begins as uh, it came from my experience of, you know, diving. Uh, I was in Gaia Island. I was diving. And on the other side of the island, there were these dynamite explosions because the local fishermen were driven to desperation because of these very uh, exploitative global fishing industries. Um, the local fishermen are driven to desperation, so they, they resort to these, these very um, harmful uh, practices like throwing dynamite into the water and, and, um, and catching all the fish that are, that are maimed by, uh, by the explosions. And I remember being in such close proximity to that kind of violence. And then the poem sort of zooms in years in the future where an act of violence is done to me without my consent. And I wanted to put those two acts, you know, in conversation with each other. Um, I say, uh, you know, the line you mentioned, I want to know to petrify all movements. I often think of what 
the non-human communities that we coexist with would say to us if they could speak, and um, they would probably say no, 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 no. Mm. Um, and um, and I often think of the arguments uh, against race survivors, uh, you know, that because you didn't say no, that wasn't that isn't considered rape. So I just wanted to to have this poem make that coherent, although that is not really the aim of much of my poems to make things coherent. It's just to put things in relationship to each other because I wanted to put the act of assault in a larger conversation um, and situate it in in a narrative where it is it is related to capitalism and capitalist plunder and it is related to colonialism and extraction. So I wanted to put all of these things in conversation with each other. Yeah, thank you. Um, Unfortunately, time is ticking away. I think we'll have time for one more question and then I'll maybe get you to read a poem. But um, the poems are set in a lot of different geographical locations and they're often named the locations as well as in specific places like in the water or in a Zoom meeting or in a whale. I'm wondering if you could talk about place in the collection. Yeah, so um, I think the collection roves around a lot, and I think that's a reflection of where I was um, physically and emotionally as I was writing it. So a lot of the poems are set in Ido Ido and the Philippines, where my family is from, um, as I was uh, there. Um, a lot of the poems are also just a reflection of how <laughs> how we all live on the internet, particularly during um, lockdown restrictions, um, where I was just having such vivid dreams of um, of being on the internet while I was sleeping. I don't know if you have those kinds of dreams too, um, Rosie, but like um, my dreams would just be filled with me being inside a Zoom meeting or or um, having these imaginary text conversations with people. I'm glad to say I haven't had dreams like that yet. <laughs> yeah, I feel like um, I, I feel like it's happening to so many people. Mm. Um, but I think the poems just rove around a lot and blend all of those online as well as physical landscapes because that's just a, re- a reflection of how I and a lot of us have been living during this time. Yeah, it felt also important to me, I guess, often... I don't know, not often, but sometimes poems are in are located somewhere but you can't quite locate where they are, but I felt like it was really important that these places were named and even if I didn't know where that place was or I'd never been to that place, somehow it felt grounded in that name naming process. Yeah, I mean, like as a poet, I also, I always have to think, you know, what do what kinds of information do I give and what do I withhold? And mm. I think naming locations like I think for me was an act of generosity because I wanted, I didn't want people to misunderstand the place particularly as well when I name, when I say Filipino women, I mean Filipino women because I think um, I hate, I absolutely hate being misunderstood, which is why maybe I shouldn't be <laughs> <laughs> uh, but when I say Ibiido, I mean Ibiido when I say Filipino women homogenized as mm. all women or Asian women or women of color when I don't think that. Mm. 
Yeah, I think I think poetry is also a place of huge specificity as well, and that that really is reflected in your um, collection. I'm wondering now if you would mind reading us a short poem in the uh, minute or so that we have left. Okay, um, let me try to. Okay, because it's a short poem, let me let me do a very short one. Um, this one is called Gundiman, and the senator orders every radio station broadcasting over the sea should air our music in Tagalog, so invaders know whose waters they're on. As if our love songs alone could thwart a battalion. Our serenades would lull night guards to sleep before the noise of extraction numbed them once more. I want to be there with a love song, not to wield as a weapon, but as a comfort to the water. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us this this morning, Eunice. It's been a real pleasure. Yeah, thanks, Rosie. That was a conversation with Eunice Andrada, a poet and educator, and we were talking about her new collection, Take Care. And if you'd like to find that collection, you can um, look up Giramondo Publishing and find Take Care by Eunice Andrada. And we are rapidly running out of time today. Um, We can do probably a very short rundown. So today we started off the the show with a uh, conversation from the Stick Together show with James Brennan interviewing Alison Pennington about the issues facing workers who are working from home. And then afterwards, uh, Malika spoke with Ian Rintoul from Refugee Action Collection Sydney about the safety of people currently detained at MITRE, where a guard has tested positive for COVID-19 almost two weeks ago. And, uh, and then Priya spoke with um, Barkindji woman and Will Canyon resident Monica Kerwin uh, about, um, and Monica provided us with updates on the COVID situation in Will Kenya. And then I caught up with Jesse Noakes, who's the co-founder and coordinator of How's the Homeless WA, about the homelessness crisis in Western Australia and the recently released state budget. And then we just finally heard a conversation with Eunice Andrada, a poet and educator, about her new collection, Take Care. And that's all we've got time for on Thursday Morning Breakfast, 3CR 855am, and we'll catch you next week. Bye. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au.